Well, hello and welcome to another installment of Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelshots, Eric Kogelshots, Brian Andrew Jasinski, and Jennifer Cho Salif. Welcome back, Jen. You've been gone. You've been on the uh, left coast for a week. How's everything hanging over there? West Coast represent. (laughs) (laughs) It was wonderful. It was wonderful to be a family. And now I'm back together with my Shark and Minnow family. That's That's right. right. That's right. What were the highlights out there? It was really exciting because my parents got to have both their children and both sets of grandchildren in the same city. That was the highlights. All the cousins were hanging out together and... Um, my brother was hanging out with his family before they moved to St. Louis. So. Very cool. Yep. That's great. Very Welcome cool. back. Thanks. It's great That's to right. be back. Speaking of family, or shall I say marriage, we're going to be talking about the marriage of art and science on today's podcast, and we'll be splitting the podcast into three different sections. The first dealing with the automation of the human experience, second being the design of that human experience, and then finally the third part, which is all around transforming the human experience. So I say let's just jump into it. Eric, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in automation right now? To set the foundation, I think we should look at a few of the the visionaries in the, the industry. So Stephen Hawking stated, the automation of factories has already decimated jobs in traditional manufacturing, and the rise of artificial intelligence is likely to exceed this job destruction deep into the middle classes, and only the most caring, creative, or supervisory roles remain. And then you have Elon Musk, who has a similar perspective. It's somewhat dark as well and he's been very outspoken about this and we all know that he's also a proponent of technology and artificial intelligence but it often shifts back and forth whether he's in support of it or not but most recently he's called its progress the biggest risk we face as a civilization and he further explains ai is a rare case where we need to be proactive in regulation instead of reactive because if we're reactive in ai regulation it's too late then on the other side you have people that are supportive of it like zuckerberg who um, recently had a little barbecue in his backyard and did a facebook live video can we just talk about that for a second how much i love the zuckerberg barbecue like i'm so sad snl is not like on air over oh, the it's summer ridiculous. because that would have been an amazing thing to parody. Like, where are we going to go live from? My barbecue. Right in front of it. No shame. <laughs> not, that there should, not that there should be shame. But There's it's no shame so in odd. barbecuing. No, it's it's amazing thing. It just seems so odd to me. So during that famous scene where he's barbecuing, he said, I think people who are naysayers and try to drum up these doomsday scenarios, I just don't understand it. It's really negative, And in some ways, I actually think it's pretty irresponsible. So you definitely have the full spectrum there as far as beliefs and and perspectives on it. If we want to just break it down between the advantages and disadvantages of automation and AI, some of the disadvantages, we're seeing a shrinking workforce. The University of Oxford predicts that 47% of U.S. jobs could be lost to automation. In the U.K., that could be 35% and in China up to 77%. It's pretty significant, obviously very different models for the workforce there. With the introduction of automation, we're going to see more of that. Also, this changes the work environment because you're starting to introduce more robots and machines into the environment. There's a question of ethics, which we have covered. Also, there's the idea of infrastructure. So the world was really built for humans. And now how do we accommodate the introduction of machines into those environments? So we have to rethink the infrastructure and rebuild that so that they can work together. Other disadvantages, you have the lack of versatility, and there could be increased pollution with the introduction of more machines. What do you mean by the lack of versatility? Just that machines are built for a single purpose? Yeah, they're very rigid and and predictive, and they're constantly doing that same task. Which is part of why you want machines to do some of these tasks, right? Exactly. But if, if you live in a creative environment or have a creative mindset, that lack of versatility could be a negative. So that's the argument, right? That a lot of these creative jobs or the um, the more fun jobs, as I would like to think, are not going to go away because those are the things that likely you can't teach a robot to do. Absolutely. So what would be some examples of, let's talk about like those jobs. What are those jobs that AI is not going to replace? Like the things that come to mind are someone who writes books, authors, designers, architects, um, even more of these trade professions carpentry, plumbing. I remember when uh, Temple Grandin was in town a couple months ago to kick off um, the Milestones Autism Conference, and one thing she kept promoting and what she believes in is, and she talked about AI and how we need to train up this next generation of young people and giving them skills, giving them real-world skills, 
like the ones that I mentioned, that that won't be replaced by by AI. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very realist vantage point. Like, this will replace the need to have humans perform some of these jobs. That's not necessarily a bad thing either, though. Uh, You know, some of these jobs that are going to stay around, they're lucrative jobs. You know, you hear these stats all the time, like plumbers in the United States can make, you know, upwards of $60,000 a year plus full benefits. That's pretty amazing. That's a great job. Um, You know, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's there's a quality um, level to the jobs that are going to remain. So maybe it's refocusing on what it means to actually have a good job. I think the other thing too, that I like to think about is the fact that it's not necessarily going to replace the jobs that you want to do, you know, in terms of the things that are going to be the most fun. Um, So maybe this would encourage us to actually go after the types of work that um, would be more enjoyable. So does this lead to a more euphoric society? Does this lead to a happier human race? And does that solve some of society's problems? Because, you know, I like to think people are happier. Maybe they're spending less time and energy thinking about waging war or tearing each other down. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think, too, we should think about it from the perspective of there's automation, which is one category, and then you have AI and machine learning on the other side. So automation should be used to replace those tasks that are repetitive, right? And things that we don't want to do. Why, why, why not have a like machine Like work in a that? factory. Exactly. Or even dangerous. Like Correct, yeah. Or dangerous, absolutely. Mine shafts sending down robots, you know, met down, down a mine shaft. I remember reading an article even that they sent children down to these mine shafts Absolutely. To get um, lithium for batteries that we use in our smartphones. Or think about, you know, the whole expose that NPR did on America, This American Life a few years ago about the factories in Shenzhen, China, where they're making our iPhones and how people are committing suicide and, you know, losing limbs and all of that. You know, these are dangerous jobs. And they're, they're um, depression-inducing from, you know, what some of the studies show and the statistics. So maybe it's not a bad thing. You know, automation should, you know, to your point, be something that improves quality of life by potentially eliminating the need to put a human being in these scenarios. Absolutely. And then on the other side is the AI machine learning. And it's really important to focus on the intelligence there because if you think about it, machine learning can only be successful if there are is a human there because the machines have to be taught and that happens through repetition and and documenting what they can achieve and training them. So they can only be trained on those things that we have the answer to and that requires human intelligence. So once you know the answer to it, then you can test the machine to be able to get to that point where they're able to achieve it and they understand it. Then you can focus on a new issue. So you're always going to need a human to challenge the machine. Thing, and then humans become obsolete. Skynet. <laughs> Terminator. That's yeah. right. So we talked a lot about the disadvantages. Now, another side, we have the advantages. So automation and AI can help with productivity. It also ensures better quality. And that's largely due to being more accurate, consistent. We're going to see a reduction in cost because we aren't experiencing the same labor fees and it's safer and also allows for this idea of predictive analytics with a machine Well, that's really good background, but you know, like, what does it mean? Like, what is going to allow us to be successful in this new world order? Yeah, we've been thinking a lot about that actually at Shark and Minnow. We have been working on some principles that align with design and customer experience, but are specifically related to this idea of AI and automation. And we're kind of coining it as the survival kit or the principles for survival. So, the first being the idea of vicarious experience. So making sure that you're doing your research, conducting that research to have empathy with the various audiences. And, and it's important to think about that from the human perspective, but then also the, the robot. And it seems odd to want to have a vicarious experience through a robot, but we need to understand the world that they are interacting with because it is different than that from the human. Yeah, we recently had the opportunity to help produce and present this great event featuring Temple Grandin. 
And it was interesting when I was taking Dr. Grand into her interviews, we spent some significant amount of time in the car together and we had this fascinating conversation about AI. And she was talking in particular about Siri and the human experience with Siri and the temptation for humans to um, verbally abuse Siri, which she found Hmm. amusing but disturbing at the same time. And she was saying how, especially with children, how she found it very concerning that children are starting to abuse Siri as well, just (laughs) talking to Siri but with disrespect and demanding things of Siri. And yes, Siri is AI, but it's it's training children how to interact that could spill so over. So that was into human that was her concern was that it was going to actually train them in a behavior that would apply negative, negative behavior. Yeah. And she felt like there should be an app, which I wouldn't be surprised if Temple Grandin creates this app herself, being the the uh, trailblazing inventor that she is. She said there should be an app where if you start verbally abusing AI or Siri in this case, then Siri has a response back, something to the effect of. If you talk to me like that again, I'm going to tell your mother. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I just started laughing. I thought that was the funniest thing, but she was dead serious. If you think about AI is machine learning. And the example you gave, Jen, is machine learning in the reverse perspective, where the machine is training a human. So that speaks to the idea that we really do need to have this vicarious experience. The second principle that we have is appreciation. And this really comes from the enlightenment or finding that insight within that vicarious experience to analyze it and then find the opportunity to create that plan. The third principle would be the consolation or that plan in order to move forward. The fourth principle is thoughtful design. So designing that experience, that product, that service to acknowledge what you've learned and how you can improve it. The fifth principle, contagious content. So thinking about how do you take those learnings and translate them into AI or automation or better conversation to improve people's quality of life. And the last principle is global citizenship. And that's what this is really about as we talk about the ethics surrounding automation and AI is what are the effects on society As we think about these experiences, whether they be in communities or in your home, we want to make sure that we are thinking about the global perspective here and we're treating each other with respect, whether that is the human or robot. And how can we make sure that we just transform the human experience overall for the positive? It's super interesting. Like when we were prepping for this podcast, we were referencing the movie Her. And this is exactly what they were getting at is that she's a machine, but at a certain point she can feel and she can um, sort of embody free will. And that is the point. That, that's the thing that scares people, right? I mean, that's the thing that, you know, we want to make sure that we account for. And that's what you're saying, that there is yeah. this, like, exchange of empathy that is planned for and thought through. But the thing that is concerning to a lot of people is, well, what happens when we, get, we arrive at this place where machines can think and feel and have free will and make decisions on their own? And what if they begin to make decisions that are to the detriment of human beings? It's a, it's, it is, you know, a very sci-fi sort of like doomsday feeling, but the whole thing is, you know, if you're going to sort of invent the ability for technology to take on this role, you have to think through various scenarios and and that's the responsible thing to do in my opinion um, because it, it, it could happen. We are not far off from that and I think that's the sort of the, the craziest thing to think about is all these things that were appearing in sci-fi movies over the last 50 years. It's very feasible that machines um, will be a part of our day-to-day lives in the sense that you will be interacting with them in a very human-like way in the near future and in some ways we already are. So today we actually have a really fun special guest with us. We have Blake Brazier, who is a robotics engineer at Boston Dynamics and an abstract painter who is represented by Hudson Gallery in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Thanks for joining us, Blake. Hi, thanks for having me. So maybe just to get the audience warmed up, we have a couple of fun questions for you today and uh, just so they can get a feel for who you are and what you do. What bands would play at Blake-a-Palooza? 
dead or alive? Well, I think I would have to have three or four iterations of David Bowie. Uh, so I'd want the spiders from Mars there. I'd want the thin white Duke. I would want um, the later David Bowie uh, from like the I'm Afraid of American era. And in addition to that, I would want the Velvet Underground. And probably some Norwegian electronic musicians as well. So as a big Bowie fan, are you like, you know, in addition to the fact that he's just not here and I just hate to think about a world that we live in that doesn't have David Bowie in it. It's really bothersome to me actually on a day-to-day basis. But are you also just deeply disturbed um, in the fact that there is no Philip Jeffries in the new series of Twin Peaks? I haven't seen the new series of Twin Peaks. Oh, I'm looking for someone I can talk to about this damn series. Everyone around the office is like, stop talking about it. And I just can't. I just can't. I love it so much. But I am waiting to see if they bring him back somehow. So, Eric, what's your next question? What three artists would you love to have cocktails with, dead or alive? Um, My first would have to be Andy Warhol. He was a huge influence on me early in my career. Then I would have to go for Willem de Kooning who is my my current candidate for most important artist uh, of the past couple centuries. After that, you know, I'd say it's a tie between Picasso and uh, Jackson Pollock. And I think Picasso would probably be more fun to have cocktails with. (laughs) Pollock would probably not be fun to have cocktails with. (laughs) Well, one thing we should probably talk about is that before we went on air today, we actually, Blake and I found out that we have a mutual music connection. So back in the day, am I allowed to talk about this, Blake? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Back in the day um, when I was a um, just wee production assistant coming out of Emerson College, I worked on a music video for the Dresden Dolls. And Blake actually was in the music video and we had no idea that um, we had that that so cool. connection before we got on air. So I have a sneaking suspicion that somewhere in a past life, I may have applied silver body paint all over Blake's body <laughs> <laughs> before we shot him on camera for the uh, music video for Coin Operated Boy. So if you haven't seen the music video, you can look back and... Um, know that I was in the art department on that and Blake um, is featured talent somewhere I believe towards the end of the video he acts as a bedpost if I recall correctly (laughs) 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 so uh, maybe we'll have a link to that too engineer abstract artist bedpost (laughs) (laughs) he's a triple threat writing this down (laughs) if you're familiar with their album A is for accident that's actually me on the album cover Oh. oh, yes, yes, yes. So there is that connection. That's that's what happens in the Boston art scene. If you touch it in some way, shape or form, um, it is a little bit, um, particularly in that circle, it's a little bit of an insular community. So you probably do know each other. <laughs> but that's really cool. So we're glad to reconnect with you today. Yeah, I think that if you're in the Boston art scene, the truth is that you end up being friends with Amanda Palmer. Yeah. <laughs> very true. Very true. I met her husband, but not in Boston. I actually met him after I moved back to Cleveland, and I'm a huge fan. Certainly the power couple there. Coin operated boy sitting on the shelf. He is just a toy, but I turn him on and he comes to life. Automatic joy. That is why I want. So it's clear that you have an interest in various aspects of the art world. Um, Super, super interesting background. But I'm curious to know how you've parlayed your role as an artist into a career as a robotics engineer at Boston Dynamics. I am an artist and an engineer. I'm uh, a painter. I consider myself a painter primarily and an engineer secondarily. I'm not sure the distinction is all that important. It depends on how far you want to go back to like explain my story, but I'll, I'll start in college. I went to MIT and uh, majored in visual art and design. So already I was kind of going down the two different paths. And uh, a lot of people don't know this about MIT, but it's actually got a very um, strong uh, program in the visual arts and a lot of... Uh, support for a lot of different types of artistic programs. 
you know, as an engineer now, I, I meet people who have gone to other engineering schools, and I, I think that MIT has a very strong support for the arts compared to other schools. Like a lot of other engineers that I've talked to just like come out of their programs without any sort of appreciation at all. Um, and, you know, MIT had, you know, for example, Joan Jonas was director of visual arts program for a while, and she was just recently the American representative at the Venice Biniali. After I got my degree uh, and found myself straddled with uh, a, a, an amazing amount of debt <laughs> um, <laughs> paying for my school, I wanted to be an artist full-time, but the reality of the situation was that you need to make money. Um, and I, you know, I'd been drawn to MIT because I had a uh, aptitude in the in math and science and, you know, sort of engineering skills. And I'd always been fascinated by, uh, by robots. I actually decided that I was going to go to MIT when I was um, in the fifth grade, and I read an article in a magazine called 321 Contact about uh, bio-inspired robots being built at MIT, and they're like these giant insect robots. They're not giant, you know, like a couple feet long big for an insect, but small for a robot. And I thought, that is so cool. I want to go there. I want to see these robots. And so, you know, I did. And I actually ended up working um, as an undergrad in the robotics lab run by the woman who built those robots, which was like an amazing experience. And um, kind of was pursuing, you know, you know, this interest in robotics, which was always just sort of like fun. And I you know, kind of easy. The math and, and science stuff always, like, came easily to me. The art, on the other hand, like, when I was introduced to the concept of abstract painting, you know, in, like, middle school or whatever, I just thought that it made absolutely no sense and seemed like the hardest thing in the world to wrap your head around. And so I always wanted to, like, know what it was about. Cause, like, you know how, like, you can see sometimes you look at something and you can see that there's something there, even though you can't quite understand what it is? That was my experience of, of uh, abstract art. What do you think led to you having this curiosity from childhood? Like, was there something about the way you were brought up or the environment you were in that appreciated exploration? Or what do you what do you think allowed you to not only think this way, but um, sort of like gave you permission as a, as a child to explore? That's an interesting question. So growing up, I, I, my father was in the Air Force, and I lived in Alaska uh, until I was in the second grade. And then we moved to Turkey for three years. Uh, and while we were there, you know, we lived on an Air Force base, but it seemed like we were going off base all the time. We were always mm -hmm. driving around the countryside and, like, finding these old ruins and exploring just, like, you know, just our family, my mom and dad and my sister and I. And it's, it's really that time and place is unlike anything that I've ever experienced uh, so before cool. or since. Like, you think of ruins and maybe you think of, like, the – you know, the European sense of, of ruins, like you think of the Colosseum or something where I don't, there's like a line to get in and a gift shop or whatever. But there would be, you know, there was a, a, a Roman-style um, arena that we found like on the side of the road and there was nobody there. And it was like, you know, maybe half the size of the Colosseum. It's just there, you know. Hmm. And you can go and do whatever you want. You can wander around. You can like touch things. You can move rocks around if you feel like it. And there's just that kind of stuff littered all over in in Turkey because there's just so much history there. And at the time, their economy was not good, and they hadn't figured out the whole tourism thing very well. This was like in the in the uh, late '80s, um, and so I think that that experience was probably pretty powerful for making me feel like I had like permission to to explore. Also living in Alaska, so we actually we moved back to Alaska, and I I lived there until my after my freshman year of high school. And that's another thing that's very 
um, different than uh, <laughs> living in Boston. For sure, for sure. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, because you've sort of seen extremes. Yeah, and after Alaska, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona, which was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to push yourself to, to, to find the things that you don't know. And Do you find that you're doing that with your work quite a bit? I, that's something I'm curious about is, you know, with somebody who grows up with a curious mind as you have, you know, do you, is, that, is that important to you in what your work makes other people think about or feel that you want them to be able to do that for themselves? Absolutely. Um, in my painting, I'm, I'm always trying to do something new to like push the boundaries of like what the work encompasses or like go down different paths to explore different modes of like expressing myself in, in the work and like the best feedback that I've gotten, I've had had a few pretty good shows this year, and the best feedback that I get from from people who see the work is they say that they they just get drawn into it and they can look at it and they can like see something new every time they look, and like the longer they look, the more that they see coming through, and it's like creating a world for the viewer to explore on their own enclosed environment. My engineering job also, like, I'm, I'm, I'm always very interested in learning things. I tend to get bored doing just the same thing over and over again. So I might be doing, like, circuit design, or then I might be designing database schema, or then I might, like, work on some automated programs to do testing and validation. I think maybe I get bored easily, and I'm most, <laughs> engaged, <laughs> most engaged when there's something new I can learn. You said that you consider a painting successful if it draws people into a state of meditative contemplation. And um, I was viewing your video um, from the Cambridge Art Association where you were talking about your process. And you, know, you said it's, it's a combination of the layers and a study of what colors, what order, the types of gestures and moods that you're going to apply to the painting. Um, and, then, and you said that you almost enter, uh, you enter a flow state, a pre-established motions almost zen-like state so and what you were just saying about your curious mind and applying it to your engineering work do you find that you employ the same approach to your paintings as you do your engineering um you know do you is it something that in, for example when you're creating a painting do you find that you have to get yourself into a certain state to create the painting or do you find that the painting process itself takes you to that state so with regard to the the painting process when when it's going very well the painting will will take me there when i have found sort of a a set of things that work and i come to a painting that's maybe already in progress and i just get like right into it but there's also a lot of um trial and error getting to that stage where you know, maybe I'll I'll try something like I'll make some marks and it doesn't really doesn't really seem to work and I'll walk around the painting for a while, make some more marks, maybe like cover them up. There's sort of a it's a waltz. I'm familiar. I'm definitely familiar. It's constantly dancing slash fighting. <laughs> at least personally, that's how I look at painting. You know, there's these moments of revelation where you're like, yes, this is the correct uh you know, path, and then it, it can suddenly turn on you on a dime. <laughs> and, um, you know, then you kind of, you have to renegotiate, basically. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's great. And the, the thing that, the difference, I think, between that and the engineering work is the painting is, it, for me, entirely open-ended. Like, I don't go into an, a new painting with, like, a preconceived notion of, like, what it should be when it when it's done. Um and what I like the best, I think, is when something ends up being completely different than than a lot of the work that's come before. Whereas in the engineering, it, it's usually you have a specific problem that you're looking to solve. And so you know what that solution looks like. The trick is how to get there. With your approach to art, how has that influenced your work in technology, especially as we talk about these autonomous robots that you've been creating? It's difficult to say. One thing that I've been doing more and more um, in, in at Boston Dynamics is like work in a 
a program to sort of do autonomous testing of uh, custom hardware that we design. And uh, the programming language that I use to do this is uh, a, a graphical programming language. It's called, uh, it's called LabVIEW. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the basic idea is that instead of, you know, typing out different functions and, uh, you know, just doing everything in text, you have a graphical representation of data flow and each of these functions, and it's literally like you, you drop boxes down onto the screen and then you draw lines between the boxes. And when you have like hmm. something that, you know, and so each box will have inputs and it will have outputs and, and you can make, you know, one program involving, you know, a bunch of these things and it does a specific thing and you turn that into a box and that new box you can then drop into other programs. So you can sort of arbitrarily create levels of complexity in this programming language. And I really love it because it allows you to kind of play, you know, to sketch around and try out new ideas very, very easily. And it's, it's similar to the uh, approach that I take in, in my painting where, you know, I, I can, I can try something out and see how it looks. And then I can try something different if it doesn't look right. One of the questions that we had was around sort of this juxtaposition of art and science. And we're curious to know from your perspective, because you've worked on some pretty incredible things, we're curious to know if you feel like your engineering side work could exist without your fine art and vice versa. Could your fine art exist without what you've done in the engineering realm? From a, from a broader perspective, I think that engineering and science um, are, are things that are used to develop tools. And those tools are things that can be used in the arts. The arts are a mode of inspiring progress in engineering and science. One thing that I would love to do in my life later on would be to actually give up the engineering job. And it's not so much that I don't like the work. I think it's an incredibly interesting and stimulating place to be. But the problem is that it like totally consumes any desire I have to like sit in front of a computer and write code <laughs> or, you know, any of that stuff. And I would, um, I would love to bring some of that stuff actually into my studio practice. And I, you know, I toy yeah. around with it a little bit, but it's, you know, it, it's just, it's hard enough to find the time to apply the paint to the canvas and then do all the like, other sort of administrative tasks involved in like maintaining a, a studio practice where you're actually showing your work regularly. So I think that there are a lot of interesting like new tools available that would be a lot of fun to work with as an artist. And I, I hope that I like have time to, to bring those into my studio practice in the future. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation. I, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, there's something to do with like, you know, your optimal time for creating as well. And I remember back in my modernista days, there was um, a designer and a good friend that I worked with named Chuck Seeley. And I remember saying to him one time, oh, it must be so great. You get to work as a designer. You get to do that thing that you love every single day. Um, whereas at the time I was working kind of on the account strategy side of things. And he said, well, yes and no, because by the time he got home at the end of the day, sometimes he felt like he didn't have the energy um, to create the work that he wanted to create for himself. Um, or, you know, it's just a matter of, um, you know, like I said, having, you know, that optimal time of the day. Everyone has that, right? Some people are morning people, some people are night owls. And, <laughs> you know, just getting to create on your own time frame um, is also something that doesn't always happen when you when you have a job that, you know, pays the bills. One thing we wanted to ask you about, Blake, was we understand you were a key contributor to the Big Dog Project. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that's something that's been out there. And, um, you know, people have seen the videos on YouTube and just the fascinating thing that big dog is yeah so big dog was a really special um project uh it was really the first um real autonomous quadruped robot and it was the first 
like really famous robot that Boston Dynamics built. Um, I was extremely lucky to be a part of it. I actually got hired at Boston Dynamics straight out of college as a technician because I didn't have an engineering degree. Um, I had a visual arts degree, but I'd worked in robotics labs and I actually had taught classes in robotics while I was at MIT in like, a, a, you know, sort of like extracurricular sort of things. Um, and uh, at the time, the big dog project, the robotics group at Boston Dynamics was basically five people. And my job was to do all the things that the engineers didn't have time to do. And uh, that involved quite a lot. So even, even then, uh, I was doing like some design work and they didn't really have an electrical engineer on the project. And I ended up like doing a lot of the electrical engineering work. Um, and so the project lasted mm, about three, three and a half years. During that time, we built uh, four, four and a half robots. The first big dog was literally a, uh, a two-legged prototype that was sort of attached to this pole, and it would run on a, on a treadmill just with huh. two legs, a front leg and a back leg. At the time when you guys were creating big dog what was what was the the vision of it like what was the function like the outcome so it was a, a DARPA contract um, and it was it was crazy the first um, couple of years because it was actually only like a five hundred thousand dollar contract which you know maybe sounds like a lot of money but that the stuff that goes into a robotics project is really expensive and there were a lot of, there were a few other companies um, competing with us. So the promise was like, if you do this one thing, if you create this this one robot and it can do, you know, a couple different things, then you will get funded for a larger contract. And so it was kind of a race with these other companies to get this thing working. And um, it involved a lot of like really long hours. It was like not, un, it was not, abnormal for like multiple people to be in the office at 10 p.m. It was a small group and we were all like really, you know, we got to be good friends with each other. And uh, there was this real sort of like motivation to, to prove that we could do this thing. And we managed to, to be successful. And like my, I think my key contribution um, for that stage of the project was really uh, being able to keep track of like how everything was like wired together on the robot and then be able to um, fix things <laughs> very quickly when they broke. So there were some, sometimes like uh, one of our big uh, tests that we had to do like in front of uh, a general from the, from the army, I think, um, about 10 minutes before we were supposed to trot this robot out in front of, of this of the military brass, like one of the mechanical engineers managed to um, burn a hole through the wiring harness for an entire leg. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I had to, I had to solder together like 40 something splices in a way that would, you know, they would still be able to like live on a leg of this robot that was, you know, going around outside. Uh, and I had to do it in dozens of minutes. I think we managed to stall for time. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, one time I had to, one time the robot like had a had a computer failure while it was on this dirt road, doing an endurance test, and I had to like take the entire uh, computer system apart on the side of the road. And like, I forget what, solder like a capacitor back on or something dumb like that. Now we're a much more professional organization. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Again, just like your art, you know, you're, you're constantly reacting to these different stimuli that are presented to the, the environment. I'm curious in, in your work with building the autonomous robots, are there specific design principles that you're constantly thinking about to affect that? experience or the outcome or whatever the, the client is requesting? So the primary things that, that, that concern me when I'm doing a design project are robustness and 
size, size and weight. So like if I'm designing a, a, a circuit board, it almost always has to fit into a very specific space on the robot. Because over the years, our, our robots have gotten more and more complex and more tightly integrated. So where we used to be able to maybe, you know, put everything on a square circuit board and just like strap that to the side of the robot or something. Now, the most recent circuit board that I made looks kind of like the letter A with like a band coming out of it and then like the D-shaped thing attached on the other side and it had to fold up in a certain way to like fit onto the, uh, into a, like a little enclosure on the forearm of the, um, of the biped robot. So very, very tightly integrated. So we're like swapping CAD files with the mechanical engineers to make sure that things will actually fit. Um, and then robustness, just because, you know, these things get beaten up and you, you, anytime something fails on the robot, that means it's going to be down for, you know, half a day while the technical staff takes it apart and like replaces whatever is broken. So you don't want your stuff to fail. All right. Well, we have a little bit of a controversial question in light of what's been happening in the news lately. So who's right, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Or should we fear AI? Should we fear robots? Or is this something we should be embracing? And, um, you know, what are your thoughts there? Well, I should stipulate that what we do at Boston Dynamics is really not at all AI in any of the, of the traditional senses, I think. Um, but I think that AI has a huge potential, just like any anything that has such a, a huge potential, like it can be used uh, as a in a bad way or it can be used in a good way. So like, I don't know, it could be like nuclear science, right? You can use it to build bombs or you can use it to build clean power plants. So you need to be careful we need to be careful, but I, you know, I'm a huge fan of science fiction. I love the idea of uh, a future where machines do all the work for humans and humans just get to like, you know, concentrate on living their best lives. In looking at the way other design teams create, particularly in the engineering space, you know, what, what are things that you think work well in terms of team dynamics, design thinking principles you might apply to different processes? You know, what advice would you have for other innovators in the space? I think that, uh, that communication across teams is really, really important. I think that um, a lot of people, a lot of very creative people, especially, and that includes engineers and scientists as well as artists, like they don't really want to be like shoved into a very tight like discipline right so if just because somebody has you know maybe a degree in electrical engineering or whatever it doesn't necessarily mean that they are not interested in the mechanical side of things and i think that what works really well at boston dynamics is that we do have pretty good uh cross-team communication and you know if a mechanical engineer has a good idea for an electrical circuit, like we're always willing to listen and vice versa. If a, if a mechanical engineer or if a electrical engineer has like a good idea for a software algorithm or something like the controls, people are willing to listen. And we have, you know, we have all, we have meetings where everybody in the company is there once a week. And then every individual robotics project has a, all hands meeting once a week as well. So there's lots of avenues for people to talk to each other. We're also a pretty small company still. You know, it's only a, a 90 something engineers, about 100 people total in the company. No, I think that's so important. I feel like, you know, even in past jobs that I've had, um, you know, there are situations where, oh, well, you can't be thinking about that particular thing because you're not in that department or whatnot. And I think that taking off those handcuffs can certainly lead to better work. It's a great point. Yeah, it really is the creative friction between the different disciplines that really improves the work. Yeah, I, I think that having those boxes in place is easier for a management structure, but I think that getting past that is really beneficial. And also another thing that I think we do well is like the management isn't super, uh, super tight. You know, like a lot of people are left to do their own thing and figure out what it is they need to do to contribute to the project. Another design principle that I thought of that's actually really important, um, it works for us, is 
is that it's like you expect what you make to fail, right? Like you, we, we build these robots and then we, we know that they're not going to be perfect. Right. And then what we do is we just drive them until they don't, until they fall over or until they fail in some way and until something breaks and that informs, you know, the next iteration of the design. Um, and we don't, we don't allow ourselves to like sit around for days or weeks, like contemplating um, CAD files and thinking, you know, oh, is this the very best thing that we can do? We just, we just build the thing and then see how it fails. I think that's also so important because so many people in, you know, a multitude of disciplines, they go in there being nervous about, oh, I don't know enough to to succeed and it's really not about that you know it is about that experimentation no matter your field and giving yourself the you know back to the beginning of our conversation the permission to be curious and to try something and if it doesn't work or if it fails you know learning from that so that you can reach you know that that milestone you're looking for yeah and on the artistic side of it also you know one thing that i think people struggle with is the the blank canvas problem right where you you've invested maybe what seems like a lot of money when you're a young artist on like a really nice canvas and you're afraid to make that first mark on it because making that mark is going to turn it from you know pristine new canvas into something that you've created and that might not be worth anything i've always thought that the key to making good paintings is to make a lot of bad paintings and i've heard a lot of i've heard other people say the same thing like you know everybody has so many bad drawings in them and they need to get those bad drawings out before they can make good drawings. So I think there are some parallels there. For sure. Yeah. It's kind of like that, you know, you hear in our field a lot, you know, there are no bad ideas when you brainstorm and just getting everything out on paper or on a whiteboard or however you're getting your ideas out there, but just so you can get it out of your head because sometimes it's so easy to get fixated if you're a creative or a strategic person on like that one idea. And until it's like out of your head, you can't give yourself like the space to think about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, uh, good way of thinking of it, getting it out of your head. Thanks so much for being with us today, Blake. We really appreciate you taking the time for the interview and look forward to what you're working on now. Maybe uh, get to a gallery showing sometime in the near future and certainly keep our eyes peeled for what you have going on in the engineering sphere. Absolutely. It was uh, fun to talk to you. Thanks, Blake. My bigger boat this week is more of a shout out and it goes to one of our favorite little spots in Miami, Ball and Chain. Every time we go to this place, we love it. It is like a super fun time, great spot to go and see live music and they have killer cocktails. So if you find yourself in Miami, definitely head down to Little Havana, go to Ball and Chain and then uh, maybe if you're like Eric and love yourself a Cuban sandwich, definitely head over to Versailles for some late night eats. Oh my goodness. My bigger boat goes to my little brother, who's not really that little. He's actually bigger than me, but I'll always think of him as my little brother. Shout What's out your to little brother's name? My little brother's name is Dr. Gerald J. Cho. <laughs> and I, I put the doctor in there because I'm really, really proud of him. It doesn't sound like a little brother at all. I he know. sounds like a legit adult. He is a legit adult. He is. And I'm so proud of him. So he and his family literally need a bigger boat because they're moving. Um, well, they've moved, actually, to St. Louis and he is starting his first like job um, out of medical school. Oh. Yep, a- after a six-year residency at UCSF and a one-year fellowship at NYU, and he will be doing craniofacial plastic surgery at the hospital um, affiliated with Washington University in St. Louis. 
So bigger boat to my brother. I'm really proud of you, Jared. It's like 13 years of blood, sweat, and tears, and you are making your dreams come true. My bigger boat this episode goes out to Melanie Wise, who is the founder of the startup Fetch Robotics. I recently read an interview with her, and she brought up a really interesting point, and it relates to automation, machine learning, AI, everything that we're talking about today. And when you think about usability, there's so many people out there that are having issues just operating a web browser. They can't even explore the internet the right way. They have issues doing that. So when you start to add in the idea of robots and machines into that, that are intelligent, you really have to think about the user experience and usability and how we can decrease that amount of friction to make their experience better. And that's something that she's doing all the time at her company. So I think that's really remarkable. Today, my bigger boat is going to go to my good friend and fellow art star, He'll know what that means. Mark Regelman, of, originally from Cleveland, but he now lives in Brooklyn, New York. Incredible, site-specific, uh, uh, three-dimensional artist. A lot of people in Cleveland would be familiar with his work. He's all over the city. He has the community picnic at MoCA. He did site-specific installations for the first few Cleveland Museum of Art solstice celebrations. He is the... Uh, creator of the sound boxes all the way down East 9th leading up to the Rock Hall and several others throughout the city but I wanted to give him props as he has just been cited in designboom.com for his recent quote colorful Quaker style dwelling that has been planted into the Rose Kennedy Greenway and it's just really incredible um, he's calling it the meeting house and it's this literally this bright vibrant yellow house that is sunken into the lawn there over on the Rose Kennedy Greenway and it towers more than 14 feet in the air and it's semi-submerged into the lawn and it's meant to uh, represent the oldest surviving Quaker meeting house in Massachusetts so that's why Mark Regelman always deserves a bigger boat and in particular because on this day of recording it's his birthday he's in Cleveland and I get to see him tonight. Happy birthday, Mark. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. In honor of all our students that are heading back to school in the next few weeks, this episode is in support of MIT. The mission of Massachusetts Institute of Technology is to advance knowledge and educate students in science, technology, and other areas of scholarship that will best serve the nation and the world in the 21st century. They are also driven to bringing knowledge to bear on the world's greatest challenges. Thank you in advance to MIT for accepting my son into the class of 2032, Max Kolbejotz. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.